All right, we are rolling now, counting us down. We just can't help ourselves. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, books, spoken word, experiences, things that have built us up as people. We share them with each other and you, the audience, and hope it builds you as it has done for us. We are the retrospective that is introspective. Nice. Hell yeah. That was very compact and concise. And when you finished, it was like that moment when a character in a piece of media flashes you their brilliantly white smile and there's that little ding, the little yeah. glint off of their tooth, that was that moment. Aww. My, my, my world-famous glint moment? Yeah. And it's on a audio platform. Yeah, but they could hear the glint. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Lex, today you brought in the 1931 movie M from Fritz Lang. That's that's it. That's the correct pronunciation. Thank you. I've been practicing my German. <laughs> you, you told me before we started recording. Yeah. You gave me a sample. I was very impressed. Good. Yeah. I, and then I felt a lot of pressure to live up to that example that I gave because it was like off the cuff. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, and so you never know how it's going to come out. You got to just trust your instincts. It's like an improv thing. Right. And you got to stay. I was listening to many years ago around when he was promoting Crazy Heart, I believe. I was listening to T-Bone Burnett on some podcast or other, and he was talking about how when you're making music or really any kind of art, you have to put all of your focus and intention into it to make the thing happen, but you cannot... You cannot do so at the expense of cutting the thing off. It has to be very focused and intentional, but very loose. Otherwise, you end up stifling the thing. Right. And I feel like I feel like you maybe ran into you. You treaded that line. Mm. It's a thin line, but I yeah. feel like I feel like you were able to walk it. And I feel like T Bone Burnett would be very proud of you. Thank you. Oh man, now I feel like um, John uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt in that movie where he's a tightrope walker, and everyone's like, "You're gonna die," and he's like, "But I must do this. Look I, at my, my blue eyes." My name is Petit. I must cross the towers. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much how he sounds. Right. It's actually I haven't seen the movie, nor have I. I saw the documentary Man on Wire. It's very good. Oh, cool. So I mean, the story is riveting. I didn't see the. JGL. I think Zemeckis directed that. For context, uh, Man on Wire, the documentary, and what is the long way? Is it not long way down? What is the title of the something Zemeckis one? Anyway, it's it's based on a documentary, and it's a true story about this guy who I believe is named Philippe Petit, and he his claim to fame was he put a tightrope between the two towers of the World Trade Center and walked across it. Why? I don't know. Yeah, it's just what he does. Petit got to walk on that on that rope. Yeah, and it happened to be on 9-11, so it was weird because he was doing it, and then the planes came, and it was real sad. Oh, see, this is... Now we've taken a turn into tastelessness. (laughs) That was the line. That was... You just jumped over the line. (laughs) Uh, No, it was... This predates September 11th, or I assume you would all know exactly who we're talking about. Uh, So, Lex... Why don't you pitch don't him you to stop us? Stop talking about Man on Wire and start talking about another film that starts, the title of which starts with M and also ends with M. Mm-hmm. And is M. M? Anyway, uh, this is, I guess, to date the oldest 
piece of media we will have discussed on yes. uh, the show. Why? Why do I want to talk about this movie? There are a few reasons. One, as I mentioned to you before we started, I just really wanted to give myself an excuse to rewatch this movie. Yeah. I'm working on a bunch of different projects right now. It's going to be a long pitch. I'm working on a bunch of different projects right now, and a lot of them, unfortunately, have a lot of uh, stop-start. You know, so there's a lot of gaps in between tasks that I have to accomplish. So I have to find a way to fill that time so that I don't go mad. Yeah. What I've decided to do is I've assigned myself a big curriculum of old movies, starting with, I started with Eisenstein. Like I looked at uh, Battleship Potemkin and Strike and I, I pulled up his book uh, of essays on film theory. And then I'm progressing through, I figure like I've, I've programmed something like 60 movies for myself spanning from 25 to about 65. Yeah. A lot of uh, individual classics, but also works of filmmakers that I either had not looked into or wanted to revisit. So there's a lot of John Ford, a lot of John Houston. There's some French new wave stuff, but bunch. So 1931 M is where I've arrived in my curriculum. Yeah. I hadn't seen this movie in years. I have the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, but I hadn't pulled it off my shelf in quite some time. So watching this movie and why I feel like it is such a fascinating movie to talk about is, it is 2019 in the United States of America, and if you're looking around, you see in almost every direction what can happen on a scale both large and not so large when a society allows their decisions to be informed directly by paranoia mm -hmm. and what that can drive otherwise seemingly respectable people to do and what happens when everybody starts to fall into that trap where lines of morality start to blur in the name of what was once in the name of righteousness, uh, protecting our own, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When that paranoia becomes your guiding star, how quickly things can begin to unravel. M is an incredibly relevant movie today, at least as much as it was upon its release. Yeah. I, I think it is a movie well worth examining for its social critique. Fritz Long was very much fixated on social evils. It's uh, themes that are prevalent throughout all his works. But on top of the social critique that I think, uh, of course, merits discussion, this thing as a piece of cinema history, technical cinema history, is pretty spellbinding. It was Fritz Long's first sound film and the film is about two-thirds sound and one-third silent and uh -huh. what he's doing the way he's meshing technical elements that were relatively new in the medium uh, consider that this is only four years if i'm not mistaken four years after the release of the jazz singer which was the very first feature with sound like actually, you know, spoken as opposed to just having uh, some accompaniment right. that, uh, frequently in the physical location that you're watching the movie. Yeah. So on top of the social aspects of the film that I think are fascinating, the fact that you're seeing a lot of elements that have become commonplace today, that so much so that we take them entirely for granted, you're seeing their genesis in a movie like M and how a filmmaker like Fritz Lang takes the step from, from silence to sound in a way that isn't, I'm just going to totally jump into the new tech. You know, I'm not just going to totally do the fashionable thing now because it's fashionable and lean into it for that reason. How can I use this new technology in an artful way, integrate it organically to create an effect that we maybe haven't seen before? I think this is a heck of a movie. Yeah. Um, I feel like another thing to point out is you were talking about his social relevancy um that this was 
just on the on the like the cusp of the rise of the Nazi uh, party. Like two years later, I think is when Hitler would take control of Germany, mm-hmm. um, and the movie itself would be banned until like years and years later, decades later, I think, actually. The way the story goes, too, uh, Long was approached not too terribly long after the release of M by Goebbels, uh, Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's minister of propaganda, mm-hmm. with an offer to essentially come direct films for the Nazis. Right. The meeting is said to have not taken place. They couldn't find... Apparently, Goebbels kept very meticulous logs of his meetings and activities, and no such meeting could be found in those books. And as we know, obviously, with the benefit of hindsight, that's not ultimately what Long decided to do. Right. I I, I had done some research on on Long. Uh, It was saying that he, uh, his co-writer slash wife... um, he had seen the effects that the Nazi party was having on her, um, which really... His his then-wife, Thea von Harbo, who, yes, yes, uh, wrote the movie and developed it with him and and worked uh, until they separated, was a frequent collaborator of his. Right. Um, And one of the catalysts of their split was her being real deep in Nazi partyism and him being, I think, half or a quarter Jewish, um, uh, saw that it was going to have very uh, detrimental uh, long-standing effects. Um, so he like he left not too long after their departure um, or their separation. Uh, but like you were talking about the ideas of like this paranoia and this this mass hysteria and it's a preamble to what would be the rise of the Nazi party, which I thought was really interesting. It's fascinatingly prescient. For its time, it's it's the rare film that is couched what feels so specifically like uh, couched in its own very specific point in time in history. Yeah, that still plays with equal relevancy. You know how many decades? The better part of a hundred years later. You know. Yeah, that doesn't happen that often. It's true. Um, I will say I I didn't. I didn't do research before watching because I wanted to go in as fresh as possible. So when those silent moments happened, I was like, is it broke? Did I break it? So, for example, right, there's a there's a sequence where the police are hunting for the murderer. This movie, by the way, is about the uh, there's a a child murderer who's on the loose. And it's about the hunt for this child murderer played by Peter Lorre and about what happens when different factions of society become fixated on searching for this murderer and the lengths they're willing to go to and the moral compromises they're willing to make right in uh in the end with the end goal being the apprehension of this killer so there are sequences where the police for example have taken to the streets and a bunch of police everybody's running around trying to look for the guy everybody's patrolling super hard but the sound drops out completely so yeah, you might and drops out so completely that you're not really even hearing hiss on the audio track. It's just silent. Yeah. And what that means is the moment where you hear a whistle blow, loud, shrill, out of nowhere, it is that much more impactful because instant before that was nothing but silence. Right. And that's to me the the benefit or the the really brilliant thing about doing continuing to do elements of this film in silence, right? I still I think it is about a third of the movie that's silent. Yeah. But again, juxtaposing that with this new form and these new tools in a way that is impactful as opposed to feeling gimmicky. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we should kind of give an overview of like what the, the story is about. I mean, you talked about, you gave the, the synopses. Yeah. Um, the, the 
the factions being like there's a criminal organization or a, a series of criminal organizations who feel like this child murder is giving them a bad name and also uh, imp- impeding on their business. And then we closely follow the the police as well. Um, and of just like a few citizens who are just concerned. Concerned or people that are early on once society starts getting paranoid, there's an old man who's just stopped to let a little girl know what time it is because she asked him. Yeah. And because he's talking to a little girl, people set upon him as if he must be the murderer. Right. But you talk about, so you started by talking about different factions of criminals who, yeah. because all of the police are now aggressively searching for this one murderer, they're doing raids. So any sort of not well-to-do establishment where business might be conducted is no longer a safe place to do business. Yeah. It's negatively affecting their bottom line. So it's less about I mean, it is explicitly about he's going to give us a bad name, but it's all in service of protecting their bottom line, their business. But this idea of, you know, crime is a business, but more than that, to the extent that they're being genuine about not wanting to be associated with somebody like a child murderer, gets to this little bit of this idea of the nobility of the criminal, Right. right? And so I guess now would be the time to talk real briefly about Brecht, because at that, Fritz Long has talked about how at that time it's almost impossible not to have been influenced by the works of Bertolt Brecht. Mm-hmm. And the Three Penny Opera being a great example of a story that deals heavily with this idea of the nobility of criminals. But Brecht is also how we get to Peter Lorre, who plays uh, the killer in this movie. He was 20, so he was mid-20s when he made this, but his, his rise largely was predicated on his work in Brecht's productions okay and laurie would then go on to have a pretty extensive screen career he'd appear in american movies as well he was in i mean uh, uh, maltese falcon he's in casablanca dude's got a bit and people you would recognize him even if you don't know the this movie even if you don't know peter laurie himself yeah. you would recognize his type being parodied right you know or you would you have seen especially his character in casablanca you've seen that exact type those mannerisms parodied and referenced over and over and over again so that's how we get to peter laurie too and the idea is that they wanted to cast somebody who you'd look at him and you would just never believe that this guy was the murderer but the other thing i found really interesting watching this movie super recently is that in my memory and i think this was true for a lot of people who revisited the movie i read roger ebert's review not from 1931 but from (laughs) uh obviously many decades after when a new print of the movie was released you know for audiences to see a more cleaned up version of it he wrote a review at the time that said in his memory and we have this in common the film was much more centered on peter laurie and the murderer when in fact he's got relatively minimal screen time. He's very much a presence. Yeah. But in well over half the movie, his presence is sort of defined by his absence right. in a way. The movie is about him without really being about him. And he's got that one big monologue at the end. Mm-hmm. But predominantly the movie is about the hunt for him. It's about all the this circus, this frenzy of activity that takes place about and around him without it really being about him and very quickly you see these different factions whether it's the criminals the police the citizenry it very quickly becomes about them just as much if not more than it's about him right um i feel like 
I am now dropping down the spoiler wall because there are a lot of details I want to talk about. Yes. Um, so if you haven't seen it and you don't want any individual moments spoiled, uh, this is the time to jump out and then come back at this specific moment. Uh, your podcast app will save where you left off. Um, but yeah. Uh, so we uh, we get our first view of him uh, when he is like, well, yeah, when he uh meets Elsie and buys her a balloon and and essentially whisks her away into death. So in terms of his introduction, there are two things two things that merit consideration um and examination. So before we see him it takes a while before we actually see his face. As we, he's introduced as a shadow. We only see his silhouette. It's yeah. also interesting if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not misremembering the police inspector Loman I believe we meet him the same way. We first see his silhouette. And there are characters later in the film where they will be talking. We will meet them as their their physical embodied self. Mm-hmm. And over the course of certain sequences, we start to focus instead on their silhouettes on the wall too, which I find interesting. Yeah. Well, the second the second time you see Hans Beckert is the killer played by Peter Lorre. Yeah. He's writing his note to the press. So you don't you only get an obstructed view of him from behind. It's not till we see him looking at himself in the mirror and making all of these faces right. that we actually see his face. And even then it's a reflection. So that's interesting. Make of that what you will. The other thing though, and I feel like this, this merits even more specific attention. This is one of the earliest to the best of my knowledge, certainly one of the earliest uses of musical leitmotif in film. Of course, sound film had just become a thing. Yeah. Before we see Peter Lorre enter a scene, we hear him whistle mm-hmm. the whole movie he's whistling uh in the hall of the mountain king by edward grieg which he wrote for the pier gint suite number one yeah you've heard uh, if you're like what does that mean you've heard in the hall of the mountain king yeah um i mean i feel like the most popular version of it is from home alone when he's doing a bunch of stuff um i feel like you hear it a lot in like christmas times it's always very much in terms of like setting up a big thing um because it's super epic it's the do 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 yeah yeah um by the way uh trans siberian orchestra well i guess actually in this period transylvanian orchestra has a really good version called satan's lair very good all right yeah check it out all right so so you do you hear before you see him you hear the You couldn't th- think about the fact that you couldn't really do that yeah. prior to that was not that was not something that was being done to the extent that, again, like we we sort of take musical leitmotif for granted now. We don't necessarily think about it unless you are used to keying into that specific type of thing. Yeah. But being in a position where now you can use that as a tool and you can use that to you can use that leitmotif to announce the presence of a character without physically seeing the presence of a character. Right. It, again, if you're watching it through the prism of, well, I'm a m- movie audience member in 2019 and we're about to be on our fourth Avengers movie. It, yeah, of course. It's like, well, yeah, what what is so blah, 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 blah. But you have to consider the film in context and how things like that were not common the way they are today. Yeah. And how sound in film was still relatively new, and this was Fritz Long's first film implementing it. 
and how deftly he is able to weave it all together. Right. But yes, I felt that the the late motif bared mentioning because it's such a such a prevalent feature of the movie. Yeah, and I like the way that it's implemented as part of the plot as well because it's one of the it one it being his defining feature for the audience also makes it his defining feature in world which is ultimately what leads him to being caught yes um which i thought was a really cool way to use that Mm -hmm. even as a 2019 cynical viewer um you know i feel (laughs) on that note um i feel like as someone who doesn't watch a lot of old movies, um, uh, I can I can still sing this this movie's praises in that like there are so many barriers of entry for people who only watch modern movies and that like it's in German with subtitles and it's also like uh, it, it's also very old in, in that like it is made in the 30s so like it's the the shot style is very play like. Um, in that, like, you get a lot of stills and you, you got, you get some like moving camera actions and things like that. I would say, I would say, I agree with everything you're saying. I would say though, nowhere near as play like as the movies we were making in America, uh, up till and well beyond that time. Oh yeah. They figured some real cool stuff out in Europe before we figured it out over here. Most of the, most of the cool shit that happened, uh, like when the new Hollywood took over mm-hmm. was a response to the influence of say, whether it's the French new wave or German expressionism, which of course is what this, what we're talking about. Yeah. Think about, okay. Perfect example. There's a shot and it's the shot in the movie where one of the plans that the police have is to recruit beggars to be their eyes and ears around the city yeah so there's a scene where they're in an office and they're basically they're signing people up people are coming through they give them a name we'll take a thing it's like okay you're in charge of this sector go yeah the way we get into that scene and this is not play like sir the way we get into that scene is the camera starts outside and we track towards the window which is a you know little uh I don't know what you'd call it, but it's like got little boxes, little win- big window, but it's made up of smaller little windows. Yeah, window Cam- panes. Right, window pane. When I say window pane, I think larger. Oh, you think? I think of windows that have been like shot or cut or stabbed, and they're just like crying the whole time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. You watch it leave out the window, guess that's why they call it window pane? Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> one of the little panes, it moves directly into, and you can see through into the room. Yeah. But then you see in the frame, now obviously today you'd find another way of, of doing it. You'd CG this little part out or something, but you see the little pane slide open, and the camera goes through it and into the room. Yeah. And we begin the scene. And that... The, again, it's it's rudimentary. You can see how they did it, and you can see the little pain slide over. But that's a pretty virtuoso move for the time. Yeah. I forgot that. So that's actually something when I was in high school making short films with my buddies. That was something that we did at a certain point. We were shooting at my house. And what we did, and I this must be what they did here. We started outside, and my bedroom, the window faced the driveway so mm-hmm. i started up at the end of our cul-de-sac and i at, at night and i took the camera and i ran up my almost evil dead style because they do this shit also um running up my driveway and then i jumped up to where my window was 
and put the camera through the window where a buddy of mine would pick it up on the other side as seamlessly as possible and we would track it kind of through my room into the hall and into the other room where the action was going to be. Oh, nice. It's a cool, it's super, it's a super low budget rudimentary trick, you know, yeah. but it's, it's effective. But mm-hmm. to see it implemented in 1931, I thought was super cool. Yeah. And that is not play like. No. Well, and that's what I was kind of getting to is that like you see some very, very interesting and, and innovative ways that they find to, uh, use the camera and and also just do like scenes in that like you were talking about when the police were hiring the beggars. Um, that whole scene is a is a parallel scene between the criminals and the the cops doing their planning and it's jumping between them and it, it's almost like like you'd see it in in a, a modern like SVU or or like you see it a CSI. all the time. Yeah. It's it's that uh right the cops and the criminals are having their conversations in their respective boardrooms essentially. Yeah. And the police will start a sentence and then that thought the gist of it will be picked up before the sentence ends by one of the criminals right. and vice versa. Again, like you say we so take that for granted now. That wasn't being done. Mm-hmm. Continuing starting sound in one scene and continuing it into the next scene was not being done right yeah i think i had read that this was one of the first instances of like voiceover use in film um because again it, using sound it was so uh new that I, most people were just kind of using in area sound and not necessarily doing any kind of la- layering or anything like that because i imagine also that doing multiple tracks of audio is terrible and difficult and pain the ass especially when you can't do it digitally when you're literally having to cut it and put it on your strips of film right you know that's a very that's an arduous process if you're only doing one track uh-huh um so oh man because also you have to time it it's crazy shit's crazy it's pretty incredible that movies ever got made right it's uh, also pretty incredible when you consider the fact that this was less than a hundred years ago yeah you know like sound was less than a hundred years ago. You know what I mean? Like, like Eisenstein made Battleship Potemkin in 1925. Mm-hmm. Two years later, we got our first sound feature. Right. We're still what? We're still a good eight years out from the hundredth anniversary of sound in feature films. Yeah. Does that not blow your mind? That blows my mind. I mean, you know, hundred years is, is is a long time, man. That's like two old people back to back. You know what I'm saying? That's like that's like my my grandma. You know what I'm saying? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but think about too, like in in American film, yeah, film grammar the way we understand it didn't really start to develop. In my opinion, didn't really start to develop broadly until the 50s. Right when. I don't know. They started figuring out maybe we shouldn't only shoot these things like plays. Uh, <laughs> That's a little, it's a little unfair, but you know, you know the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. And it wasn't really until after that, that it's like, oh, okay, well in Europe, they figured some of this stuff out a minute ago. Right. So let's start to pull from these disparate styles and create something different. Yeah. And certainly more cinematic than what we had, we had been seeing by and large in big American studio movies. There are definitely exceptions, but even the productions that were a lot bigger, a lot of them ended up feeling very stagey. 
Yeah. And the whole the whole method of performance. Like it, what, on the waterfront was a big deal, which wasn't until like 54, I think. And that's when Marlon Brando almost single-handedly, he gets that much credit, changed what film acting could be. It didn't have to be stagey anymore. It could be that very naturalistic approach. Yeah. That was that 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 time frame is even smaller than the time frame in which we've been using sound in film. You know right. what I mean? Like this, it's hard because we we are a very narcissistic species, and we have a very hard time conceiving of anything existing before us or after us. Yeah. And everything that existed before us seems ancient, but in fact, this happened a second ago. Right? There are there are there must be they're they're getting up there, but there must. be be a few people out there who were alive and remember sound in cinema becoming mainstream. Right. Doesn't that blow your fucking mind? It blows my fucking mind. <laughs> um, cut I, to, cut to, we're almost on our fourth Avengers movie and shit. Right. I mean, yeah, but like, I don't know, man. Like, especially being in the generation where we've gone through so many different forms of technology in such a short amount of time. Like it, it blows my mind less so in that like technology itself, especially as we prosper as a society becomes more and more apt to grow and adapt as we do. Um, and because it becomes more of our focus, um, we're able to innovate, especially when we're not in a, in a state of dire straits, like, like, like you know. we are now. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of. I'll say it. There's a lot. There's a lot happening. I'll say the it. The world is full of things. Yep. Um, so I think we had talked a little bit about this like weeks and weeks ago um, about like how uh, innovation uh, kind of dips when when people become more in survival mode because of the whole like maslow's hierarchy of needs right. like you know you're just taking care of your bare minimum just trying to exist there's no there's no bandwidth left in your mind to innovate when you're literally worried about whether or not you can eat that day right yeah this episode of missing out is brought to you by two girls one mic the porn cast hey you've heard the saying everyone's a critic right and it's true even with porn Join host Yvette and Alice as they discuss the holes and the plot holes of your favorite porn. They're joined by comedians, porn stars, scientists, and authors to review films, discuss the industry, and topics that are porn slash sex adjacent. Where else are you going to find Tom Arnold guesting to discuss how who's nailing Palin applies to today's democracy and political landscape? Where else are you going to learn about topics like teledildonics, quicksand porn, and bootleg dildos? It's our favorite kind here on Missing Out. Check out their show wherever podcasts can be found at their website at twogirlsonemike.com and on Twitter at twogirlsonemikepod. That is two girls with the number two, one mic with the number one pod. Two girls, one mic, the porncast. Check it out. Um, so you know, I, I, but I do, I do think it's crazy that this this movie, which is now almost uh, a century old, um, is still doing things that we are cribbing. Uh, at this point in our existence, mm-hmm. um, it's also really interesting to see. I think one of the biggest pieces that kind of like threw me for a loop a little bit was the the investigation and how that process went. Because like now, you know, you watch all these shows and and they're pretty hyperbolic, but like you know, 
people are like, you know, we, this person left DNA and we're going to, we're going to go and, and find all the forensics and make sure we find this person. And we're going to use all of our criminal informants and everyone's going to have a, a camera attached right, to behind, them. Behind the investigator, you just see all these texts with big vats of sperm they carried away right. from the scene and shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like seeing this boots to the ground method of investigation is really cool. Mm -hmm. Like seeing them having to like physically draw the circles for the perimeters on the map of where these, these things took place. And, and even just like that moment when the, uh, the night watchman pulls the alarm, which essentially uh, initiates a, a physical punch, uh, like a tape punch, and then the tape punch lets them know what card to pull, uh -huh. and then that card is like, it's this building, which is insane. That and fingerprinting and handwriting analysis are their big technological power tools and right. shit. Yeah. Um, which, like, the, the handwriting piece was really fascinating for me in that they they're anal they're analyzing it and then they're like yo this was written on a wooden table you find something made of wood and you got your perp but that's right then it's you see how quickly police the police in this story then assume greater and greater and greater power and how in service of catching this killer people are relinquishing more and more and more and more privacy and more freedom. Does that sound familiar? It sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Uh, so you see instances of people at first, it's just people having their home searched without their consent. Yeah. And then it becomes, well, if you don't have the right papers, if you don't have the right documentation, we're taking you in. Does that sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. <laughs> also. Yeah. You talk about the desk. Now everyone with a wooden desk is a potential suspect. Right. You know, like it, where does that, stop well doesn't it doesn't there's no there's no line well i mean i guess you know it it stops when the people push back um and then but like it's it's all you always have that trade-off like privacy versus security like the more you allow these these organizations or these establishments to take some of the burden of your own security from you, the more you have to give them in terms of like access and information and stuff like that. Um, so it's like, it's one of those human trade-offs. But isn't it so fascinating that a, in a film from 1931 now, it's especially, it's especially noteworthy because yeah, this was right around when the Nazis were beginning their rise to power in earnest. Yeah the conversations they were having already in 1931 about how rapidly privacy was disappearing. Yeah. Does that all sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just tilting at windmill windmills and shit, but <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, everything seems dandelions right now. Doesn't I mean, everything seem yeah, great. Seems so good. Doesn't everything seems so good and not at all reminiscent of some of the ugliest times in the world history ever. Yeah, definitely. Doesn't it? Aren't you glad that things are so fine and with, that nobody's in trouble right now? Yeah turns to man with gun now release my family i've said it i did what you asked oh i pictured you turning to the camera and making the jim halpert face and shit ah uh, just mm. <laughs> different references you know what i'm saying different reference was that one a reference no it's a reference to that time somebody took my family hostage <laughs> you insensitive bastard um it's um i had this old joke when um when the olympics were in russia 
Uh, and the bit was that anytime someone said something really nice about Russia, they turn off the cameras and they turn to the producer and go, now release my family. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> technically it's a stupid reference to a many, many years old bit. Got it. Um, yeah. Do you but, know what else is a many, many years old bit? <laughs> 1931's M, a film by Fritz Lang. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, but uh, kind of circling back to the the two different factions thing, I really found it super interesting when we get to the point where the criminals are chasing down the uh, the killer, mm-hmm. um, Beckert. Yes. Uh, because it, you almost are rooting for them, even though they're this nefarious group of people and you know that they're like, their purpose isn't necessarily of high morality. It's more so like they're less inconvenienced. And at at a certain point, once you get to the kangaroo court, like you find that they also view this person as reprehensible. It's a, right. It's a combination of. And here's some shit that may or may not also sound familiar to you. Uh It's a combination of needing to deal with it because you feel personally inconvenienced and then also feeling you need to deal with it. Yes, it starts from a place of paranoia. Yeah. But but it becomes just like it becomes for a lot of the citizenry in this movie about their feelings of moral superiority. Yeah. But once you're willing to compromise the way some of them compromise in service of, you know, this is what's right and I'm moral and you're a monster, where where is the line past which you have made yourself monstrous? And right. we see characters crossing that line, right? When they break into that building to get him. Yeah, obviously one is not equivalent to the other. Beckard is literally murdering little girls. But look at how wantonly destructive that mob is. Yeah. In their in their attempt to nab him. They literally tear through the building. Mm-hmm. So much so that the police show up later, not knowing that they were there or what who was there, what what they were there for. But we see now that they're all gone, all of the destruction they wrought. Yeah. You know, that not Beckert, the citizenry, all of the destruction. So much so that the police assume temporarily that this must have been a robbery this must have been somebody broke in to to destroy and to rob and then they see the safe and it's like this nobody touched this right what happened then how could something this destructive have taken place if not in service of a payout like we would expect right and it's it's not about that it's about paranoia and moral superiority driving people to destruction ostensibly in the name of righteousness. But where's that line? And also all of this took place without actual like hard, like we as the audience know that uh, Beckert is guilty. Um, But essentially the way that they corner him is that a guy recognizes his whistle. A blind man too. And this is something else they do with sound that I think is really cool. Uh, Earlier in the movie, we spend a moment with this blind guy where he's, he's listening yeah. To something he's listening to music, I think, and mm-hmm. he covers his ears and then the sound drops out. Yeah. And then he uncovers his ears and the sound comes back. And right. I like that little bit of subjectivity. But the blind guy, yeah, he hears that late motif and that's what ultimately keys him in. That and the balloon that he sold. Yeah. Keys him into 
who Beckert is, and then he pulls in a buddy of his who does have eyes to see, like, that guy, track that guy. Yeah. And then smack the chalk M for murderer onto his shoulder. Right. But, like, none of these people have any concrete evidence. They don't, they didn't see him literally murdering a child. They didn't find any bodies in his, like, the police had gotten to the point where they were in his house and they found the place where he was doing the writing and they found, like, actual evidence but like these criminals are are acting under what is essentially hearsay um and it could have also been that that he uh beckert was just a dude who got locked in one of the rooms like he was just a like he could have been someone who's like i got lost in this place and then ends up just getting taken and bound and put in front of this kangaroo court like it's crazy the mob makes an assumption Right. And that's all it is. The assumption happens to be correct. Right. But that's all it is, is an assumption. Sidebar, because you mentioned they were in the room where he's doing his writing. Something that really leapt out to me uh, this time was, so here we have a serial killer who is writing directly to the press. Yeah. Which reminded me, I would I would have said, I would be so certain that... Uh, that was the explicit reference for uh, David Fincher's killer in Zodiac, were it not for the fact that David Fincher's Zodiac was based on the real killer, the Zodiac, who also <laughs> did exactly that, right. who also wrote to the press. So now I find myself wondering, was Zodiac a fan? Maybe. Not that this is an important question at all, and not like the concept of writing to the press and taunting them could only have popped into your mind <laughs> if you watched this film. Right. But that jumped out at me in a way that I had never responded to quite that way. Yeah. Well, I think that there was talk that this killer was uh, also referencing another killer that was out in Germany called the the Vampire of uh, Dusseldorf. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. Uh, I believe, what's his name? It's uh, Peter Quirton, but okay, so after the fact, Long was said uh, said to have disavowed the idea that it was based specifically on one person. Yeah. Now, granted, Fritz Long was also notorious for embellishing and telling, if not outright tall tales, certainly stories that he dressed up a little bit. Right. And it's, it's very possible that it was based very specifically on one person, but there were multiple crimes that were happening around that time yeah and it's it's odd to think about now but at the time m was almost uh ripped from the headlines almost like an svu type that like very ripped from the headlines so much so that there were critics who accused the film of being cheap and exploitative mm. that it was just trying to cash in on this this series of horrors that had right. been visited upon their homes and how uh, what an ugly thing that is yeah, you heard it here first, guys. Uh, M was the Slenderman film of, of its time. Uh, they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got these child murders. Let's let's bank on that fear, baby. Yum, yum, yum. People love dead kids. Ooh. And then people caught them. They caught them. Yeah. Yeah. Just like that. Yeah. See, I was thinking more like, like how movies like... Um, World Trade Center or I've Patriots Day, I think is the one about the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm. How those feel to me. Got it. Uh, I guess that might be. And actually, it's not a perfect one to one because obviously M, even if it was based on a specific case, is 
fictionalized. Right. Whereas those movies, though, yes, they are fictionalized, are very pointedly and explicitly about specific real-world events. Yeah. But I imagine it would feel s- somewhat like that. Yeah. Although, in 1931, we hadn't been so desensitized to literally any and all things that media could throw at us. Right. Can you imagine showing a 1931 audience the season seven finale of Game of Thrones? You know, or like the one before that where the, 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 I can't, I can't spoil yeah. Game of Thrones. We're right, too I was going to say, end. I was like, but, no. but one of the ones where like, you know, uh, like an episode like Hard Home, one of the giant battle episodes with a lot of special effects and shit, or just any scene of the dragons. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine? Like they'd never, they'd crawl under their bed and It'd they would like... never leave again. And that's <laughs> if they didn't take their own life on the spot. Right. Do you like, all right, man, like the great train robbery. People were literally panicked because when a train was coming at the camera, they thought the train was going to come out of the screen and mow them down. Right. Can you imagine showing these fuckers the Battle of New York from Avengers? I think they just assume that it's a window to another world. I like That's what I would do if I had time travel. I wouldn't go back and fix the ills of society. I wouldn't have to worry about the baby Hitler quandary. Because all I would do with this technology is go back in time and show like 1920s and 30s audiences Marvel movies. I mean, but then you get burned at the stake as a witch. No, I wouldn't show like 1820s and no. 30s audiences. Um, they still do it. Well, I would, I'd have my little quantum leap device yeah. and I would just piece out of there. As soon as they come towards me, I'd be like, whoop, gotta go. Yeah. And then I'm gone and then no one will believe them. Yeah. It'll be like five, like a small movie house worth of people and uh-huh. I'll just throw it up on like, um, I'll get like a big, one of the bigger tablets and I'll just throw it up and hold it like the, like the boom box and say anything and yeah. everybody will watch in horror and then I'll peace out and leave them and it'll only be like 20 people. Mm. So they'll never be believed and they have to carry that for the rest of their life. I saw a giant green man fighting creatures from the sky. <laughs> like, n- I don't buy that. No, you didn't. And then a, a man named Stan will be like, you know, that gives me an idea. It turns out I invented Marvel Comics yeah. by bringing adventures back to the past. Yeah, it's a bootstrap paradox, you know? Uh, bootstrap paradox? Bootstrap paradox is the idea that um, it is a... A causal relationship where something from the future inspires the thing that creates it. Um, they do that on Game of Thrones too. Yes. So it, it, yeah. Um, so that I would say, and also like Johnny Be Good in Back to the Future, where which is which is questionably yes, yes, a little bit white guy invented rock and roll and all that. I mean, yes, but also not your point. But it was like, but. It was insp- he was inspired by this person who he then who in turn then ended up inspiring, right? Right. But what so, if so if Marty McFly had never gone back to the past, would there be rock and roll? But there was rock and roll. There was. So you're not so, supposed to think about this shit too. But like hard. the idea, uh, like I feel like a lot of the time when it comes to like bootstrap paradoxes is that the person would have figured it out eventually. Why is it's it called just that bootstrap paradox? I don't remember. Fair enough. Um. But uh, named after beloved Pirates of the Caribbean character Bootstrap Bill Turner. Yeah, how did you know? Yep. yep. Um, no. Uh. <laughs> the paradox <laughs> is the paradox is if if returning the coins, all the gold to the treasure lifts the curse, and his dad is under the water, presumably not dead, wouldn't he have killed his dad in that movie? But once you're part of the ship. 
that means that you are also like undead. But he didn't know Davy Jones grabbed his dad. For he just knew that his dad was on the bottom of the ocean, and none of these people can die. Right. So he's just like, sorry, dad. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that he preferred that his dad um, have that death as opposed to being uh, undead underwater, having to live his existence in that sad state. That's true. What's wor- Drowning seems like it would be horrible, though. It does. But how does drowning for all eternity until someone p- uh, ends this curse sound? Until, until they develop submarines and someone finds you. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't sound great. So I'm going to bring the Pirates movies back to the past also. Cool. Great, great, great. <laughs> and I'm going to be like, look at the sea monster. And they can't stop crying. I'm going to bring back uh, just the end part of Inglorious Bastards with the theater fire. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be real intense and everyone's going to freak out. And then they'll be like, who's that guy? And then like years later, they'll be like, oh, shit, that movie knew. What I want to do is bring back the last, I don't know, 40 minutes or so of Infinity War and be like, guys, this is what happens. This is this is documentary footage <laughs> from 2018. There is still time to stop the Mad Titan assembling the Infinity Stones, but we all have to work together. Now go spread the word. Yeah, and, and the only thing that's going to keep him away is this thing uh, called... It would, is to fight this thing called climate change. So what you do is don't invest in coal and try to develop clean energy. I just every time they say Thanos in the movie, I'll just dub over climate change. <laughs> as long what? as I've known climate change, he's only had one goal. What's his name again? Climate, climate change. change. <laughs> and then when he snaps, he's like, you should have gone for the head. Snaps his finger. Thor's like, no. And then he's like, what did you do? And then he looks to his left and there's a blizzard. And then he looks to his right and everything's on fire. <laughs> and then Thanos is like, ice and fire, Game of Thrones. And then just zaps out of there. Yeah. And that's what he's doing. He goes, the place that he lives at the end of Infinity War, the little porch he sits on. He sits, he smiles as the sun rises. And then he goes inside and binges Game of Thrones. Yeah, of course. That's what they couldn't say it because, you know, Disney and like HBO, I think, is owned by Time Warner and stuff. So you can't mention it. Right, 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 right. But when Doctor Strange is like, then what do you do? The original scripted line was, I'm going to binge Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) And if I don't like the ending, I'm going to use the reality stone. (laughs) I'm going to fix it. (laughs) So if you're unhappy with the ending of Game of Thrones, blame the Mad Titan for what will surely be his greatest crime of all. Yeah. Um, He's actually been working since season seven. He's a staff writer. (laughs) Yeah. That's the reality he changed. He's like, he got himself on the staff. Um, So if you could just imagine his interview process where they're like, have you, have you written before? And he's like, I've written realities before. (laughs) And then like, please stop laughing like that. It's unsettling. Uh, and the 1930s audiences are like, I don't understand any of this, and I'm scared. <laughs> yep, that's how it works. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about that court, the like kangaroo court. Yeah, scene. we're still talking about a movie. So um, yes, at the end of M, the the basically the angry mob gets out ahead of the police and nabs Beckert, and instead of allowing him to go through the actual judicial system. Yeah, they take him to a basement 
yeah. and they hold their own kangaroo court, which is that's where basically all of the central themes of the movie are crystallized. Yeah. Because essentially you have these, this mob uh, calling for this guy's death. And there's one dude who's, who's set to be his defense. Um, and you, you at this point get everyone's separate perspectives. So like you, you, you learn that, uh, and they kind of hint at this a little bit before where um, the Beckert doesn't necessarily want to kill these kids, but he has a compulsion to do so. Right. Um, his, his argument, and it's a big, impassioned speech from Beckert, and, and it's Peter Lorre's one big speech in the movie, and yeah. he so crushes it. But the heart of it is, I can't. It's almost like I'm a victim here, too. Right. I can't. I wouldn't. Why would I do this if I had any other choice? It feels like, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but it feels like there's this noise and this white hot burning blinding thing in me and it just builds and builds and builds and builds and the only way I can get it to stop is by killing right and it's not my choice yeah his argument is essentially it's a compulsion yeah and it's it's a a rudimentary insanity plea Mm -hmm. essentially yeah and then like but like from the from the crowd's perspective they are they looking they're looking at it from the perspective of the moms and fathers of of the victims and it's like one of the ladies she talks about like him never having a child and never knowing what it feels like to lose that child and that in doing so like he deserves to die mm-hmm. um and i i like that the the criminal lawyer is, is like like you guys don't have the right to judge this man. He, he is obviously sick and and needs help, um, which death will not provide him. It will only serve to not even alleviate your, your fear and, and your, your hurt. It'll only just kill a person. Right. And, and at what point are you the thing that you're decrying? Right. Right. Like, is this actually about justice for you or, by the by this point is it about something else is it about wanting blood is it about you know because the the mob and of course at that point it's a combination of some of the criminals and the citizenry yeah but it's they've just become a vengeful angry vigilante mob and mm-hmm. and where where did the structures of justice go where did the the ways we're supposed to handle such a thing in an honorable fair where, where did all of that stuff go as, as I keep saying, right, it's like, is it actually about justice or is it about we were just out for blood, which also sounds super familiar. Yeah. Well, I mean, but also the the main criminal known as the safe cracker gives a, a fairly uh, reasonable response. It's the it's the Batman Joker response in that, like, Batman never kills the Joker. So he is, in, in effect, responsible for everyone that he kills when he es- eventually escapes from prison and does it again. And so, like, the man's main argument is that if they take him to the police, he'll he'll just go to jail for a little bit or he'll go to an asylum. He'll either escape or be released, and then he'll be out to kill again. Right. So they would be better to take him out of commission now and not be responsible for his future t- killings Right. Where do you, where do you fall uh, as far as this argument? Right. Like Batman and Joker is a perfect example. Now, well, actually it's maybe not a perfect example because (laughs) at a certain point I get that Batman has a code 
and I get I don't necessarily want Batman to kill the Joker, but at a certain point, the dude has demonstrated over and over and over again that his existence is far too deadly and destructive for massive swaths of people. Right. At a certain point, you gotta do something. Yeah. But an example like, well, like, like, like Peter Laurie in this movie, what, what do you think would have been the appropriate way to deal with him? Assuming, of course, we're already in this kangaroo court scenario. Right. Proper ways, turn him over to the police. Yes. But assuming we're already in this scenario, do you come down firmly on one side or the other? Um, I mean, I think that. Because I'm not a fan of capital punishment, mm-hmm. and so I don't necessarily feel like killing this dude is going to bring about any good. And it's certainly not going to bring the children back. Right. Um, and so, like, I am definitely in the court or on the side of, like, turning him over to the police. And even if he is in the asylum, like, it sounds like, based only, like, on his face value... Uh, or based on the face value of his monologue that like he could effectively get help in this asylum or he'll just be removed from society and uh, the, the issue will be taken care of. Maybe he escapes and then they catch him again. Like that's how it works. But like these aren't made to like jails and asylums aren't made to be a, a rotating door of, of uh, people. None of it's about rehabilitation. It's about punishment. Ultimately. Right. Like we're not really interested in reform or rehabilitation. We just want to punish people. But I am inclined to agree with you. I do think, like I said, like the Joker example, at a certain point, if your very existence is that catastrophically destructive, maybe then something does have to be done. But right. but that's also a very that's a slippery slope for sure. Because how right. do you define destruction on a scale that is quote unquote enough? Um but I, I agree with you. In an ideal scenario, prisons, asylums are actually about reform and right. rehabilitation and not about punishment. In that scenario, forget forget helping him. You know what I mean? Forget helping him process and get better and, and beat his demons. Though, yeah, it's great if we can do that too. The amount that you could potentially learn from institutionalizing this guy, talking to this guy... Ex- having him explain not just his thought processes but his actual lived experiences yeah. as a way to try and discern a little bit better what could drive a human being to something like this if you just off the guy you don't get that right i feel like it's very easy for people to just kind of stamp a a, a label of crazy and just move on which like yes it robs us of the overall like because the information that you get from this guy could essentially could essentially help you help others who may be on the brink of like whatever he's going like he didn't all he wasn't always a child murderer like at, at some point he was a guy struggling with his compulsion and eventually gave in mm-hmm. so like you could effectively learn how to possibly deal with that and and kind of like work with people who are leading up to that point before they get to the place where they're like, you know what? I will kill this kid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what takes, because by and large, right. I mean, this then gets into the nature versus nurture type thing, but I, I believe by and large monsters aren't born monsters. 
they are they are shaped that way i'm sure you go through if we if we could all if we were all omniscient and we could all see into each other's souls then maybe i'm sure there are exceptions but by and large i feel like monsters are created they're byproducts of their environment especially from an early age especially if they're victims of trauma abuse etc 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 what are the common factors and what are the factors that are more individual? Because even the factors that are not necessarily all that commonplace could still be very enlightening. Right. We don't really, we're so much more interested in blood and punishing those that we view as inferior or morally or otherwise. And there's so much more we could gain if we were more intellectually curious don't get me wrong dude kills children dude should be punished right but i think there's a way to punish him that is of greater benefit to the rest of us right also killing someone isn't necessarily a punishment in that like if there is no afterlife then they've like i've did my thing and now i'm done and i don't have to think about it anymore he's out he's done he's done um whereas like you know the idea or at least in its conception of like jail was to provide a place where people are separated from society and can reflect upon the things that they've done and like in an ideal work ideal world work on that right. but like sans that last piece like they have to live with the things that they've done mm-hmm. um so you know maybe maybe try that maybe maybe let people live with the the stuff that they've like also um despite what television and, and movies would have you believe, like not everyone who is a psychopath or sociopath is a, an insane murderer. Right. You know? So like some there, uh, I forget the statistic, but it's a, it's an unsettling statistic in terms of the percentage of people who are sociopathic to one degree or another. Right. I guarantee, you know, at least one, a lot of the time it's the funny asshole. Most right. of the time, the funny asshole's just an asshole. And the reason that they, you, nobody seems to piece that together is because they're super charismatic in the way that a sociopath is super charismatic. Right. But, like, all that to say that, um, you know, dis- despite the, stigmati- the stigmatism with those, those disorders, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that someone who is sociopathic or psychopathic should just be murdered. Of because course. There are certainly degrees to this shit, yes. Right. Um, and there is a lot that we learn by interacting with them and talking with them and figuring out um, the, 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 the way that their brains work. It's the same thing with, and not to, not to get too far into the weeds on this, but it's, it's, I feel similarly about cancel culture. Okay. I feel it now there are certain people who should definitely be canceled. Yes. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, it was a good idea to cancel that guy, for example. But I feel like we are now so quick to do that. The same way this mob was so quick to jump on this guy. When in fact, instead of dragging people publicly, shaming them, canceling them, in far more cases than not, I feel it would be a far greater benefit to everybody to actually sit back, take a deep breath, and examine what it is in a way that could be informative for everybody far more so than just saying this person's canceled don't speak of them ever again right well there are of course exceptions yeah i'm not this is not a blanket rule about everybody who we as a culture have canceled because again there are plenty of people who more than fucking earned it yes but i feel that we are so quick it's an extension of of you know we can be out for blood now without actually drawing blood it's right. very easy to go after somebody like a vicious, angry mob. We see it on Twitter all the time. Yeah. You know, and I feel like there's so much we could learn 
if we could curb that. It's tribal. I think it's coded into our DNA, you know. But it's something that if you have the awareness of it, you can you can rise above it. You can you can practice patience and temperance in yourself, you know. Um, but I feel like yeah, it's an extension of that, and there right. are, there are far more constructive, valuable ways to handle even a, even a destructive person, a mm-hmm. way that we really could learn from, not to help that person reform, but to help us learn better how to avoid similar similar pitfalls, similar circumstance, similar people from happening right. again in the future. Yeah. And the I feel like the big piece is that when you're acting as part of a mob, like it takes away all ability to process nuance. And essentially you have to just kind of take this idea and this piece for what it is in, in that like what everyone is presenting it to you. And you can't like one, form your own opinion on it, but two, like, you can't kind of see the finer points of it. Like, there are, yes, you were saying, like, there are lines where if there's criminal activity and people are actively predatory, of then course, yes. Cancel the shit out of them. Right. And listen, here's, here's in situations like that, you you listen to the people they victimize because we can prove that they did that shit. Right. That's how we learn what we need to learn. Exactly. Right. We're not talking about people like that because, no. yeah, good, fuck them. Yes. Right. So, like, I guess my example would be last week um, there was a discussion with Monique and Steve Harvey. It was all over the Internet where people were like, Steve Harvey, what an <laughs> asshole. Um, uh, Monique had been blackballed uh, from... Uh, like in Hollywood in general, like her and her husband. And um, well, she, you know why? Um, she had um, essentially some people had reached out to her for projects and she wasn't interested. And so they they said she was difficult. Um, and so in one of her, I think it was one of her stand-up things or some, I forget what the context was, but then she basically said that those people, it was like um, Oprah and two other people could suck her figurative dick um which again pushed her further out in the the route like the further out from once you, you publicly know, take shots at oprah like oprah's pretty much our the the queen of this like like yeah we have presidents sometimes and stuff but like yeah. oprah we really know that oprah's in charge of everything right once you openly take shots at the o it's it's tough man people are like uh-uh man i can't be seen to associate with you oprah's got people everywhere right oprah's the mistress of whispers and shit yeah um mispers um anyway uh so yeah and then so this conversation was with steve harvey talking about her being blackballed and she was trying to give her perspective and it's like a i want to say it's like an 11 minute conversation but the piece that was floating around um twitter was this one minute section where she starts to say a thing and then steve harvey is kind of talking over her and she tries to get her point in but like she she's not able to because he's talking Mm -hmm. and so it's one minute of of footage out of the 11 where that happens and everyone's like steve harvey what an asshole but like if you watch the full video like it's a it's a conversation it's very heated yes Mm -hmm. and like uh he has a point in 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 some way and, and she also has a point in that they're talking about um, being black in in Hollywood and having to present yourself a certain way, and she's talking about how like she doesn't want to give up her integrity, and he's like, well, sometimes 
you know, uh, feeding my family is more important than my integrity. And so they're giving these two different standpoints. And like at the end, the way that it resolves is that, um, Steve is like, look, I know that you're valuable and you wronged them and they wronged you. They weren't there. Like, cause I guess, uh, you know, they had been publicly talking about her and, and they like, she would have preferred that they like talked to her in private. Right. Um, and so he's like, you did a, a bad thing and they also did a bad thing. So like, I would love for you guys to reconcile and I'm going to do what I can to get you guys in the same room or get you guys to reconnect in some way. And apologies can happen on both sides. And that's how it ended. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very interesting, poignant, really like nuanced conversation, but you take that one minute and then everyone is essentially shitting on Steve Harvey. Right. Um, and that's what I feel like is a really good example of how like something taken out of context could quote unquote like cancel a person because no one's taking the time to do the research or do the the like diligence to look into it. Yeah, nuance has uh, by and large pretty much died. In, in our discourse. I, I wouldn't say it's died. It's died. I think that like, I think that the air arenas that we're choosing to get on those hills and pick our battles aren't the proper arenas. Mm-hmm. Twitter is for showing pictures of your dog and cats and like, that's more te- Instagram. promoting yourself right. or whatever. But like, it's not the place to have a very in-depth pl- political conversation or a conversation about like the nuances of sexuality and gender. Like it's not the venue, but like it's very difficult to do that without uh, just a mob descending on you. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think that we are choosing the wrong venues to pull, to stand on our Hills. We're choosing the wrong Apple boxes to step upon. Well, we're also choosing the wrong sources of information. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if, if the only place you saw something was Facebook, it's false. For, <laughs> for example, like, that's a great rule of thumb. Right. If you didn't check an independent source on this, it's not true. So if you're learning anything from Facebook that's about anything but your close friends and family, it's it's not true. So you're already entering into this scenario with bad information. Well, yes, but it's also d- very difficult to... Like now it's getting so hard to trace your, it's not hard. It's, 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 it's harder. And if you don't, if you don't, I mean, there's a learning curve, you know yes. what I mean? To, to parsing your information and figuring out what is verifiable, what is accurate. It right. is very, it's, it's difficult if you're not used to it. There's definitely a learning curve. Right. It's not that hard. Yes. I do, but I truly believe it is not that if you have a no. smartphone, it's not that hard. <laughs> No, well, though smartphones are a double-edged sword, and that, like, you know, yes, you have you have access to all the information in the world. I was just having a conversation about this, and that, like, we're talking about how kids, kids today, right? um, You ever? I'm starting to feel like we're young guys, (laughs) and I'm already because things change so quickly. I'm already starting to feel ancient. Yeah, but like kids now have access to so much information but they don't necessarily have the time or resources to do the, the like critical thinking that comes with processing that information. And so like, yes, it's one thing to have a window into the world, but if you don't have the means or the ability to 
put those things in context, then it's just it's a it's kind of a wash. It's a waste. So like, are kids getting smarter or dumber? You like statistically, they are getting smarter, but the way that they use that information is a lot harder to pin down. And also, you may be moving in exactly the quote unquote right direction, let's say intellectually. And yes, what, what does that mean specifically? But you get, I, hopefully, you get what I'm what I'm going for. But then at a certain point, you get tripped up because the way you're using these devices and the way you're engaging just makes for confirmation bias and echo chambers. Right. If you go into it not knowing how to parse that information, it's possible you never will. Or it's possible that you'll think that's what you're doing, but because you started coming at it from the wrong angle to begin with, you're not doing it correctly, and it's just confirmation bias and echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a way, yeah, there's a way to do it. There's a way to do it that is more productive, and there's a way to do it even if it doesn't satisfy that visceral, like, violence, get him, right. in the moment. It's long. It's more long-term beneficial, potentially beneficial. And going all the way back to M, I feel like the movie, without necessarily making that point explicitly, gives us like two endings within the one ending because mm-hmm. the kangaroo court is ready to kill him. Yeah. They're basically like, yeah, so wait a minute, wait a minute. Your argument is that you have to murder people? We're going to kill you. That's not a good defense. You're dead now. Yeah. And then the police find them all. Mm-hmm. And the police come in and they arrest Beckert and presumably a bunch of these other criminals as well. Right. So ultimately, ultimately, quote unquote, justice prevails. But as we've seen at multiple points throughout the movie, the line between what is justice and what isn't gets gray in situations like this and we've seen the movie making direct parallels between the organized criminals and the police right so i feel like within the one ending we get at least two endings and then there's that little tag on the end of it where you see the mothers weeping and the last line of the movie is essentially is one weeping mother basically talking to the audience yeah and and fritz long when asked like were you intending this movie to have a message or to make a point of some kind he said for him it's what the mother says at the end is mothers you have to keep a better eye on your children and not just mothers parents you have to you have to keep a better eye on your kids um and that's why at the very end she's like you know and and you too like shit like without pointing right at the camera (laughs) she's basically like yo i'm talking to you yeah hello you, th- you thought this was just a lighthearted piece of child murdering entertainment? No. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, yeah. So that, that too, also really gets to the heart of a lot of what we've been talking about. Right. About trying to figure out, not just watch your kids in, uh, in terms of watch them so that they're not abducted, because that could just feed back into the paranoia that we've seen can be so destructive. Yeah. But also parent your kids man like like that's how that's part of how we can each do our part as it were to stop young people from turning into Beckerts for example right or to stop young people from abandoning the concept of critical thinking and nuance you know like yeah yeah it's it's look out for the kids but not just their physical safety for their mental emotional spiritual development as well yeah so that we can hopefully avoid as best we can in the future 
succumbing to our most base impulses in situations like this instead of using our higher thinking abilities because giving into those giving into those impulses on an individual basis gets tricky and probably will get you into trouble but it doesn't create mass consequence the way when it happens in a mob situation right. can create you know what i mean like think about hans beckert and it's not a one to one because again the dude literally murders little girls yeah so it's a weird like that's about as horrific a thing as one could do yeah think about how much more destructive that mob potentially could have been, right. especially once they decided they were okay with crossing that moral line. Mm-hmm. So yeah, watch out for the kids because we it, it is so possible to overcome the basest parts of our nature if we are taught that we can, if we are taught that we should, and if we are if we are taught things like nuance, critical thinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, so right. So I, I, like, I like how apropos the final line of this movie is given everything we've just been talking about. Yeah. Do you, I, the longer I talk about this movie, the more incredible I find it. So where do you ultimately after this conversation, like do you, can you tie up your thoughts about this movie in a nice little bow? Just real quick, like you know, you know what I'm asking. Yeah, I know what you're asking. Um, I would say that it's a really uh, it's a really fascinating movie, both on a technical and a, a storytelling standpoint. Um, I think that even people who are used to more like modern storytelling will definitely be able to appreciate it. And I think that like I think that they should even be able to appreciate it more. And that like I think that it really kind of shows you where a lot of our modern sensibilities came from and also is is just very entertaining in and of itself um so i think that it really hits on a lot of different levels and did you did you find the age of the film and the the black and white you know like uh, chiascaro photography and whatnot did you personally find that a barrier for entry um not at this point in my existence. I think that like maybe a few years ago, would maybe like a de- yeah, yeah, it would have been, I would have been like, all right, I'm going to slog through this. Yeah. Um, you have to, it's almost like learning a language. It right. was that for me when I decided I really want to go back and see the works of the old masters. It really, there's a learning curve and you, yeah. it's almost like learning to read. Right. In a sense. Um, well, I'm glad that it wasn't a barrier for entry because in all likelihood, a lot of the things that I bring in in the relatively near future are probably going to be a little bit older since that's what I'm assigning myself. But we'll see. Okay. And if, look, if it encourages people, like if you, if you are listening to this episode and you've never seen M, yes, we spoiled it all for you, but this is a hard, in my opinion, a very hard movie to spoil. Plus it's almost a hundred years old. So you, you've had time. Also, we gave you, you gave, we gave you your chance. If you got here and you were like, well, I'm just going to listen to it. And you're like, you guys spoiled me. It's your fault. It's your own fault. <laughs> you really, you could have like, you call us victim blamers, but really you could have done something to avoid this situation. But my point is, if you're listening and you don't hadn't seen it, that. don't yet, yeah, don't call us that, please. This is so uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, we try not to be here on missing out. Uh, but okay. If you are listening and you have not seen M and it sounds interesting to you and you are hopefully inspired to seek it out and give it a watch, I kind of feel like I'm doing the Lord's work. So hopefully, hopefully if you're listening, whether you've seen it or not, you take something away from this. And and yeah, like I'm all about what is this show, if not a platform for people to share passions? Yeah. As you maybe you could 
can't tell. I I love cinema. The shit is in is in my veins to a degree that makes me uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> but but that includes all of it. You know what I mean? That it stretches back to you know like when when we're you know Eisenstein right Potemkin and even a little bit before that right. It, so I love being able to hook people on some of these these all-timer movies like uh, other movies since m have done a lot of the same things and yeah. some of them have done it very well but nobody's done it better than fritz long did with m and yeah. so anytime i can turn people on to these movies that they may not have ever given thought to because it's super old is black and white it's in german whatever if i can you know herd people that way it, it i feel like i've done a good thing so hopefully hopefully if you're listening you're inspired to go check it out because it's real good yeah and it's available on amazon prime you can also find it on itunes if that is your if you have like an apple tv or whatever also criterion is uh, launching their streaming service in april i believe and i'm i'm positive it'll be there as well oh sweet yeah so yeah uh so guys check it out uh lex where can people find you if they're looking for you i am on twitter and instagram at the lex michael all right. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Tari J, T-E-U-R-I-J-A-Y. But you can find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M-I-S-S-I-N-G-O-U-T-C-A-S-T. Uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this discussion about M. We hope that you have a chance to check it out. Uh, and we hope to hear from you guys. Um, you can hit us up on Instagram or Twitter. You can also hit us up on the Missing Out hotline, which is 978-MISS-OUT. That number again is 978-MISS-OUT. Uh, so, cool. This has been the retrospective that's introspective. And now you've got a new perspective. Yeah! Yeah, boy! Brop, brop, brop. How's that for a slice of fried gold? It's ragu. It's ragu. It's ragu. Did you know a turkey puppet once ran for the presidency of Ireland? Did you know that meat once rained from the skies of Kentucky? Did you know that there was an emperor of the United States for a while? Then listen to the Wiki Ship Down podcast. We live in an age when the sum total of humanity's knowledge can be found in your pocket on a smartphone at any given time. But when that knowledge is peer editable, like it is on Wikipedia, what does that say about mankind? So follow us down the digital rabbit hole as we drink, joke, and curse our way through the random button on Wikipedia and see where our journey through humanity's knowledge takes us. While you're at it, follow us on all social media at Wikiship Down. I'm Ruthann. I'm Ryan. And be sure to find us every Wednesday on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts.